Hello and welcome to another episode of the My Favorite Books podcast. In today's episode, we are going to explore the relationship between religion and the role it plays in titular works of 20th century fantasy. We will be focusing on two landmark works of fiction, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis and the His Dark Materials trilogy by Philip Pullman. Now, both of these books, since they have been published, have received equal parts praise and criticism, one more so than the other, but we will get to that a little bit later on. So the reason that I chose these two series in particular is because they both tackle this subject, meaning the subject of religion, from opposing sides, one of which would be considered to be very pro-theist and the other would be very anti-theist or just plain old atheistic, as some people have described it to be. The first of which, The Chronicles of Narnia, was first published in 1950, starting off with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The last book, The Last Battle, was published in 1956. Chronicles of Narnia spans seven books, and fun fact, there was going to be an eighth book, but unfortunately, C.S. Lewis died before he could bring that book into fruition. Now, The Chronicles of Narnia is probably the better known of the two, and if you're wondering which side of the coin it falls on, it is most obviously on the Christian side. When C.S. Lewis was writing the series, he was very much in his Christian faith, and as such, the Christian allegory within the books is very blatant, so much so that he has received quite a bit of criticism from people who accuse him of trying to push his faith or his religious agenda on younger, more impressionable readers. Now, His Dark Materials, in part, is written as a response to C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. While both books do present a very overt religious philosophy, His Dark Materials does get more criticism, mainly because a lot of the themes and messaging in Pullman's novels tends to go against traditional religious doctrine. The title of this series, His Dark Materials, is actually taken from a passage in Paradise Lost. Into this wild abyss the womb of nature, and perhaps her grave, of neither sea, nor shore, nor air, nor fire, but all of these and their pregnant causes mixed, confusedly, and which thus must ever fight, unless the almighty maker them ordain, his dark materials to create more worlds. Into this wild abyss the were-fiend stood on the brink of hell and looked a while, if you want to know how overt Pullman's anti-Christian allegory is, all you have to do is look at the main villains of his novels. In the first book, we are introduced to an organization called the Magisterium, which is, in Lyra's world, yes, there are multiple worlds in Pullman's universe, is the direct equivalent to the Catholic Church. And this is, unsurprisingly, a point of contention among many. The parallels between the two are very direct, and Pullman in his books is quite blunt about his own sentiments about the Catholic Church, and as you could guess, they are quite negative. Many critics of the novels are very uncomfortable with Philip Pullman's challenge to religious doctrine, especially when, again, he is rewriting the series as a celebration of the fall of man. Even though they're on opposing sides of the spectrum, there are quite a few similarities or even inversions that the two series share. In terms of world building, both take huge influence from classical mythology. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis borrows or pulls from Roman mythology. 
So Narnia is quite known for its strange and eclectic group of beings, many of which are talking animals. Our Jesus figure, who is known as Aslan, is a large talking lion. But amongst these beings, we have figures that are pulled straight from Roman mythology. We have fawns, such as Mr. Tumnus. He's one of the first people that we meet in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who in Roman and Greek mythology are lusty woodland gods that are half goat, half man. We have a variety of nature spirits, such as dryads and naiads. And we also do see prominent gods from Roman mythology, one of whom is Bacchus, or, again, his Greek equivalent Dionysus, the god of wine. And in Narnia, Bacchus slash Dionysus is actually a river god, which, on C.S. Lewis's part, is quite ironic, considering that, again, Bacchus slash Dionysus is the god of wine, and yet he is a, a water-slash-river god, because Jesus can turn water into wine. I thought that was quite funny. And this wasn't a mistake. Lewis himself, even when he was a young child, was a huge fan of mythology. One of his published works is actually a retelling of the tale of Cupid and Psyche. Now, his Dark Materials, on the other hand, borrows strictly from Greek mythology. And this really only happens in the third book, which is called The Amber Spyglass. We see the heavy Greek influence when Lyra and Will visit the world of the dead. Philip Pullman's version of the afterlife directly parallels or is synonymous with the Greek afterlife. In Greek mythology, there are three different aspects of the underworld. We have Elysium, which is essentially heaven, do-gooders, virtuous types, heroes, they all go there. We have Tartarus, which is pretty much hell. People who are judged and punished go there. And then we have the Asvidel Fields, which is where common people go. People who didn't really do anything overly special with their life. Philip Pullman's afterlife is very synonymous with the Asphodel fields. A main difference here is that all people, regardless of who they were or what they've done over the course of their lifetimes, end up going to the world of the dead. And just like with the Greek Asphodel fields, it's just this large space where souls just stand around in this gray, dreary environment for all of eternity. They're there so long that they forget their own lives, and even their own names. Harpies also are featured prominently in Pullman's World of the Dead. They are there under the rule of the authority to watch over the land of the dead before Lyra convinces them to be different. They are there to mock and torture those poor souls who are just standing there doing nothing. <laughs> and we also have the figure of the ferryman or boatman, who again in Greek mythology ferries the souls of the dead across the waters of Hades to the judgment which will determine their final resting place. Now, while the Greeks believed that the dead needed to carry a coin to pay the ferryman for his service, the Narnian afterlife follows the common trajectory of being dualistic, meaning that it has a heaven and a hell, or a place of reward and a place of punishment. The Christian heaven can be found in Aslan's country, 
Aslan's country, as we are first introduced to it, belongs both to the brave, the blessed, and the dead. You could either get to it by the most common way, dying, or if you are brave enough and you traverse the dangerous Narnian seas, you might be let in by Aslan. Now, there's sort of a very interesting kind of discourse going on with Narnia and the afterlife. Once we step into Aslan's country, at the end of the last book, The Last Battle, we are told that the true Narnia and all of, I guess, the true versions of all of the worlds that we have been introduced all lie within Aslan's country. This means that the Narnia that we have become acquainted with over the course of seven books is nothing more than a mere shadow, a bad copy in comparison to the true Narnia. Now, you may be asking yourself, how does C.S. Lewis view other religions outside of Christianity? To be honest, it's not great. Outside of Narnia, there are several human-dominated kingdoms. One of such is the Collarmen. The Collarmen are a people who lie just to the south of Narnia, and their culture is a bit of a hybrid between between Middle Eastern and Indian. And it is in The Horse and His Boy that we are first introduced to Collarman and the figure of Tash. Now, Tash is the Collarman's main god. He's very important to them. The capital city is named Atashban, and all the nobles and elites within the city are thought to be descended directly from Tash. We also see in the novel that uh, a lot of idols were made in his likeness. And it is sort of implied that in the temples that are dedicated to Tash, a practice of human ritual sacrifices quite common and regularly used. Now in The Horse and His Boy, there's not really much of an emphasis given to Tash. He merely just appears as a foreign deity. But once we get to the final book, The Last Battle, he becomes the successor to the White Witch as being the new uptaker of the role of Satan. When he physically appears in the last battle, he's described to have the body of a man and the head of an animal with several arms. And he also wears a lot of strange helmets and adornments as well. In terms of his physical appearance, we can draw a lot of parallels with the deities that are present in a lot of polytheistic religions. The animal heads are seen amongst the Egyptian gods, Multiple arms can be noted of a lot of gods in Hinduism, and a lot of the adornments that he wears, as well as the use of ritual human sacrifice, can be traced back to Aztec cultures. In the last battle, he is reintroduced as a figure who is the fundamental opposite of Aslan, i.e. Satan. Much like Aslan, he has his own country, called Tash's country, and while Aslan's country is would be seen as a sort of heaven, Tasha's country is talked about in the books to be a place of eternal damnation and torment. So it's set up as being the Narnian version of hell. At the end of the books, when the world is ending, all of the animals and people within Narnia, including those who have died, line up at the stable doors and are awaiting for their final judgment. Those who go through the door to Aslan's left are those who love Aslan, adore him, and also endure the Emperor Beyond the Sea, who is his father, and go into the door that leads to Aslan's country. 
and those who refuse Aslan and his father due to their hatred or fear of him, or who have fallen prey to their own temptations or vices, go into the door of the right and disappear into Aslan's shadow. The fate of those who are essentially forgotten and damned is left to the imagination, but it is presumed that Aslan does send them into Tash's country. You will notice that there is a direct inversion between Pullman's version of the afterlife and that of C.S. Lewis's. Heaven, or Aslan's country in C.S. Lewis's eyes, is considered to be perfect, while the more earthly Narnia, the land that we are first introduced to, is described to be an imperfect second-rate copy of the real Narnia that lies within Aslan's country. In his Dark Materials, it is the other way around. The afterlife instead is a pale gray version of the real world or the land of the living, and all that the ghosts want, you know, once they're free from the world of the dead, is to rejoice in being able to be a part of the natural world once again, to be able to feel the sun on their face, or to be carried away with the wind. The dead are just really happy to be able to see the land of the living and to dissolve into it and, be, and to essentially become a part of it. And again, as we've mentioned earlier in the episode, Pullman's afterlife is a direct parallel to the Greek fields of Asvidel. The term Asvidel comes from a flower which itself is ghostly and pale, much like how Philip Pullman's afterlife and the Asvidel fields themselves, a pale copy of the world that the ghosts once lived in. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Sierra Whitfield, and I'm signing off.